Hey there, documentary appreciators. Welcome to the Documenteers Podcast, the podcast about documentary films that is hosted by me, Bob Sham, and a rotating cast of fun-loving film-watching folk. And we started this February off with a 30 for 30 about an infamous night in which music pop culture collide with sports pop culture. Once again, we kind of had this theme going on when we did Straight Out of L.A., and we stay westward in the intersectionality and friendship between Tupac Shakur and Mike Tyson and Reggie Rock by the Woods 30 for 30 feature One Night in Vegas. In case you hadn't heard, a certain someone died. Next week on the show, Angela joins me, and actually it was meant to be a different host, but as it turns out, I had to scramble because a lot of issues came up in the recording process for February that has caused me to change my plans. Kind of surprised this hasn't happened more in the two years doing this podcast, but it's just shit that happens. Nothing you can control, really. But everything is in good hands because Angela joins me for a true crime-ish documentary. There is a crime, but not necessarily as generically executed like a true crime documentary. The director is Yancey Ford, and in 1992... Yancey lost his brother, William Ford, in a shooting that not only led to injustice, but really very little attempt at justice at all. In fact, pretty much zero. Turns out Long Island has its own corrupt systemic racism, which should really be a shock to nobody. We watched Yancey Ford's Netflix documentary, Strong Island, and it made us cry. All those tears next week right here on The Documenteers. Plenty of credits of brief music clips in here. Tupac is prominently featured, and we don't hold back. We play snippets of his songs such as Ambitions as a Writer, Brenda's Got a Baby, Hit Him Up, Let's Get It On, all by Tupac. Also a deep cut Vanilla Ice song that is lame as hell. A dash of MC Hammer, the Biggie song, Who Shot Ya? And we go out on a strange noise punk song by a band called Sordo. Sordo is from Oxnard. California. Their song, The Pain I Feel, Every Day, was released in 2015, and it features clips of Mike Tyson within the track. I was weirdly obsessed with this track for a while, and it is loud and thrashy, and it fades us out. Documenteerspodcast.com is our central zone. Go there and learn things about us. Five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts is the only thing that keeps us alive. It's kind of like clapping for, if you like believing in fairies, if you send us a nice review, And five stars on Apple Podcasts, we will glow harder. Let's go down this old dusty trail in a story about a rapping man and a punching man that also features Maya Angelou and Mickey Rourke. All right? And keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. It was supposed to be just another night in Vegas. September 7th, 1996. A night where boxing gloves and bullets crossed paths for the first time. Two men, newfound friends and fighters since birth. They plan on partying afterwards. On forgetting the stresses of fame and blaming their behavior on the alcohol. But in mere seconds, drinks transformed into drive-bys. Shots of Patron became shots at passenger side windows. And what should have been a lifelong bond, guillotined by gunfire. Two rounds to the head, four in total. Three more than Tyson needed to defeat his 
his opponent. So in the time it took for Iron Mike to knock out Selden, Tupac was ripped from the earth like a rose petal unwilling to budge from the concrete soil. Four, Four rounds of ammunition. ammunition. Not enough John Lewis in his legs to stutter step through steel doors. Not enough Ali to butterfly past bullets. On September 7th, 1996, there was more bloodshed outside of the ring than inside of it. Rock by the wood, chase the blues away. So you said it that way too. I'm glad because the first time I looked at this, I thought it was directed by Reggie Rock by the wood, but then Reggie Rock by the wood. By the wood. He's a whole sentence. Did you recognize the song? How do you get your name as a sentence? Did you recognize the song I was doing? No. Not at all. Off of a vanilla, the vanilla ice tape, cold as ice. I think it was called cold, cold as ice, right? I got the rhyme to keep the party pumping, turn the party out while the people are jumping. Big A style at the top of my list. This is hitting real hard, like my Tyson skin. It is so good that the girl is going crazy. Vanilla's on the mic, and you know I'm not lazy. Was that like a Reggie Rock toy or something too? Because that sounds really familiar to me. I don't know. Maybe but, some sort of pet rock was named Reggie. But Reggie's probably got the coolest name in docu- of all documentary directors so far. Reggie Rock by the wood. By the wood. By the wood. Drew, it's 30 for 30 time. And Back the, to year of Drew. Continues. Two more months. Let's actually, go. Actually, three more months because you'll be doing The Will of Other People next month for um, Listener Request Month. All right. But uh, in three months, we will finish. Be gentle. We'll be completely finished with the first case in our ESPN locker collection. Progress. And then we can move on to, is there one on the next collection you're looking forward to or not looking forward to? There's so many I'm looking forward to. There's one about the two tennis players that I'm like, am I, how hard am I going to make fun of that one when I finally watch it? All right, now I can't wait to get to that one also. Uh, oh, yeah. But one we're talking about now I've never seen. This is one of the few in the early days that I had not seen at all. And it is called One Night in Vegas. And we get, we're get we getting cultural music and, and sports colliding once again. In Vegas. For one night only. One night only. That's it. One night to die only in Vegas. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, actually. <laughs> we just ate giant burgers. I kind of got the itis over here. So many problems. How are we opening up on this one? How's it? How's it? How's it hit you? How's the hammer hit you? I have seen this one before, but it's been a long time, and I definitely did not remember it because when it hopped right into, bam, pow, cartoon graphics, comic yes. book panels, and then this, right in your face spoken word poetry. From two peoples talking at the same time over each other sometime. September 7th, 1996. It was supposed to be just another night in Vegas. There's a lot to handle right off the bat. Now, at this point, God, I've watched well over 100 documentaries for this show. And I'm getting tropes within tropes within tropes. And one thing I've seen a, a handful of times 
is the let's make this storytelling technique in documentaries like a comic book. Well, you can see that for like nerdier source material this was going to happen. When the subject is geeky, they can't stop themselves from doing that. But anymore. I wasn't expecting it for this one. No, it played up like a comic book drama, or at least that was how they wanted to hit it home. And at the same time, they brought in these spoken word artists to stand in a boxing ring and really in-your-face slam poetry... Which I'm not sure what one really has to do with the other. I didn't mind the spoken word stuff. And honestly, as far as like after seeing so many like, let's emulate a comic book storytelling ways. I can say that this is um, probably one of the more effective versions that I've seen. But at the same time, I'm still kind of questioning if it's necessary. It was still a lot to handle right off the bat. As soon as they throw you into this, especially with both of the spoken word artists talking over each other at the very beginning, the introduction, it was cool. It was really attention grabbing. But yeah, I mean, I usually watch these documentaries very late night, kind of my MO, the late night radio shows, late night watch the documentaries. Hands down your pants. Come in here, record. You know, get get real excited about documentaries. Just turning it on and immediately flashing to this. It's like, oh boy, oh, what am I in for now? Hey, Drew, this is me, Mike Tyson. Now, and we weren't even getting to Mike Tyson voice, but look, I knew you were gonna do it. You're about to, you're about to talk about my life, but I'm gonna tell you if you bring up my path, the my path of the the allegations that I've been involved in. I just want you to know I'm gonna eat your children, I'm gonna eat your cats, I'm gonna break into your house, I'm gonna wear your clothes. How are your pigeons doing, Mike? And my pigeons are gonna eat your corpse. All right, now I'm just gonna go sit over here. All right, I'll let this goofy white boy come back. Can you say corpse a couple more times corpse. before you leave? Corpse. All right, you, I warned you, okay? All right, I'm going to go sit down on you now. We'll say that's about 2,000 times better than your Quincy Jones, at least. <laughs> my, I think my Quincy's pretty good. Yeah, you do. Hey, motherfucker, it's Quincy. You think your Quincy Jones hey, is pretty good. <laughs> Quincy Jones. We'll get to Quincy Jones, all right? He, my daughter, he does have a very small part in this. My daughter Blit makes a cameo in this film. Shit. Mess with that motherfucker, boy. We're talking September 7th, 1996, where there's more bloodshed outside the ring than inside the ring. That's what they said. Mike Tyson versus Selden. That's but right. not yet. We flash back to six months earlier. We're getting jerked around, jerked upside down. Uh, to, but it's all, I mean, it tells you what happened straight up. This is the night Tyson wins back his title after being locked up. Uh, and Tupac also dies in the same night. That same night. But six months earlier, Mike Tyson drops Bruno while Ambitions as a Rider plays in the background. The boom the bucket, addressing the man public, my attitude was bucket. Motherfuckers love it to be a soldier. Must make a composure at ease, don't like what's complicated. Only what you make it to be. And it's dope as hell. This is a great scene. There is some, like, the, the musical cues in here are good. I mean, obviously, this is going to be a very musical documentary. Well, obviously, they needed to play way more Tupac. Obviously. <laughs> it's the other music they played in this. A surprisingly low amount of Tupac. Exactly. <laughs> but we say that they knew each other. And after this fight, after Tyson wins against Bruno, he's there, and Tupac runs in and gives him a hug. It's nice. It's nice to see. And then they go straight into the comparison that is at the heart of this documentary, where we get a whole bunch of talking heads flashed at you, and all of a sudden, Dr. Michael Dyson comes in to tell you that... Mike Tyson is Tupac in boxer shorts, and Tupac 
is Mike Tyson with a microphone. I mean, they are the utter mirror images of one another, uh, misunderstood by the society around them. The society embraces their genius while it's afraid of what they might ultimately represent. Both of them highly intelligent, and both of them in their own ways extremely articulate men. Both kind of small dudes, relatively speaking. Both misunderstood by society, both very intelligent people. You know, a little bit misunderstood. They kind of also had a bad habit of living up to the bad expectations people had around them. They were both respected by their by people around them, but Absolutely. also people were afraid of them. Yeah. They were regarded as kind of wild cards. But they, didn't, they don't say this, but also they were both felons. I think they wanted to say that, but <laughs> kind of skirted around it a little bit. But Mike's in here with Mike Tyson voice. I'm happy about it. My ego would tell me it's because I'm so great and fabulous, but in all actuality, it is just, it happens in everybody's time, in which, you know, it happened in Joe Lewis' time, it happened in um, um, Jack Dempsey's time. Everybody grasped on a particular fighter. Are all these boxing comics that they're showing right now, that, is that a real thing? Are there a whole bunch of boxing-themed comics out there? Uh, there? There are some. In the 90s, there were these rock and roll comics. That had you had there. I remember. I recall there being one about you know there had the Beatles and then the more modern acts of the time like Guns and Roses or N.W.A. So I think some of the covers we saw is from that era. It seemed like Reggie Rock just kind of was like, oh, I found this in a bargain bin at this local comic store. Let's take a picture of it. There were a lot of comic book panels in here, but the panels I believe were drawn for the for the movie, the interior art that we saw. Okay, because I was wondering about that as we're seeing it, because they've got these p comic panels that match up to the events that they're telling on screen, but they're flashing them so fast you can't actually read anything in the word bubbles. So it's kind of hard to follow where exactly they're going with this whole comic book theme, rather than as some window dressing to make the documentary look more visually interesting. There's quite a bit of talking heads in this movie of surprising proportions sometimes, like, you got the late Maya Angelou shows up later. We got Chris Conley. Remember him from like MTV News and shit. And uh, Michael Eric Dyson. Nas shows up for like yeah. a minute. Nas is in there just to tell you that Mike was the hip hop boxer. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks, Nas. <laughs> I guess he would know. I'd like to see it. Could you have maybe played a Nas song at least when he showed up? Al Sharpton shows up for a minute explaining how everyone. Tupac and Mike Tyson were guys that represented the underclass. So both wealthy white people and wealthy black people didn't like them. They were more the street yeah. level of respect. Yeah. Trying real hard to make this comparison again that Mike Tyson is kind of the Tupac of boxing and Tupac's the Mike Tyson of rap. Yeah, you know, really driving it home on that one. That's really the point they're trying to make in this documentary is just this, this kind of tenuous connection between the two of them. That their, their situations are similar when they cross paths. One night in Vegas. And then Tupac kind of jumps in uh, his story uh, with Brenda's Got a Baby plays. One of uh, Tupac's classic songs. Brenda's a name. She's got a baby. Baby. When I was watching this, I was thinking about like how like what hip hop traditionally represents is supposed to be. You know, almost like documentation of a lifestyle or a background or or of a marginalized community and how people survive in it. And it is the most true with Tupac. Like, I feel like a lot of people think they're being Tupac, but Tupac embodied that spirit more than anything. And even like 
despite his, what do you want to call it, gangsterisms or whatever. He had something that was different from a lot of people around him in terms of lyrically and what he wanted to convey in his music. I mean, there's a lot of hip-hop now that's like, that will make these claims, but it's like, uh, I don't know. All these songs just are, seem to be about wearing Gucci hats and getting ahead in your, mod, <laughs> in your Maserati. It's like, and I, I think a lot of the so-called gangster rap at the time was a lot closer to the streets than what we got now. Rap's into kind of a psychedelic era, era at this point. It's like everyone's just talking about tripping acid all the time, which some of that's interesting for its own reasons, but. All right, let's get this out of the way. Who's your favorite rapper? Of all time? All time. Biggie pops in my head. <laughs> uh, Ready to Die is one of my all-time favorite records. I like uh, Slick Rick right as he was transitioning out of old school. Um, we'll get into this a lot more as the documentary Out- goes on. Outcast is probably my favorite rap group of all time. A lot of the Southern raps and uh, UGK out of Houston. I'm a big fan of them as well. I was hoping you were going to mention some Southern things. Maybe some uh, some Mike Jones. Yeah, Mike Mike Jones. Uh, but you talk UGK. Yeah, UGK for sure. Me personally, even growing up in New York, Tupac's number one. Yeah, I just feel like nobody even come close to the way he flows, the way his words were there. Again, he he wrote poetry as well as his his lyrics. Yeah, they blur together sometimes. They have the one of the talking heads reading, just doing a reading of some of his lyrics there. I think it's from Keep Your Head Up. You know it makes me unhappy. What's that? When brothers make babies and leave a young mother to be a pappy. And since we all came from a woman, got a name from a woman, and our game from a woman, I wonder why we take from our women, why we rape our women. Do we hate our women? I think it's time to kill for our women. Time to heal our women, be real to our women. It just shows you that even during his lyrics, they were poetry, but the way he spit and the way he flowed, absolutely unmatched in my opinion. Not not even Biggie. There's something stylistically about him that it kind of made you have to concentrate a little harder. Whereas Nas like, is way up there too, though. And Biggie got into some shit about his depression and what he dealt with as well. But it also grooved. Like, there was a part of it where you could shut a certain part off and just let the party go. And Tupac, it's just so hard not to lyrically focus in on him. And to me, it's that just the way they do it sonically. You can listen to a Biggie track and kind of rap along with it and get into that groove, that flow that he has. You can't keep up with Tupac. No. <laughs> the way he spits just is different. It's And when he gets into it, you feel the emotions through it. It's so powerful. And it's so raw. And he, it was always like just up on the surface with him to the point where he went, with a, he went in with a friend to read for his part in Juice. He didn't go there to read it, but they offered him a session. And he blew them away with what he was able to convey in that reading. That happened a couple times, too. I, I couldn't quite get the gist of the story the way Mike Tyson was telling it firsthand. But I think he was saying the first time he met Tupac, he was underdressed trying to get into a club. And Mike Tyson <laughs> let him in. And then Tupac just grabbed the mic at the club and started rapping and blew everybody away. Yeah. And that was their first encounter with one another. Which is pretty damn impressive if you think about it. <laughs> he just got the balls to get led into a club Look, by Mike Tyson and take over the stage. I mean, how many times have you seen people with that swagger, that confidence, and it flops? It's just very rare that you see it get backed up like that. It's not flopping with him. <laughs> no. Fucking Mickey Rourke is in this. To, to my wife, okay? Because she got hooked on drugs. And somebody did some, something really bad, Okay. And then I found out the man's name who's done this, right? 
and we were over in Europe. And I heard the guy was in town, and there was only one nightclub in town. So when Mike, I saw Mike come in, I said to him, I told him a little bit of the story. And as the night goes on, we had a couple of magnets of champagne. <laughs> I know by, the end, by that time, we both had our shirts off sitting there drinking. Oh, Mickey Rourke with style. You notice his story was about how badass he was going to be? And the, and the guy at the door come over to me and he goes, he's here. He's in the club. And I said, Mike, all I want you to do is hold everybody back. Just let me bring him in the men's room. And then Mike goes, no, Mickey, that's what I do best. I'm going, oh, fuck, man. Make a long story short, this punk-ass piece of shit booted out of the, he must have, somebody must have warned him. Because I'm going this way, Mike's going this way, and who the fuck's gonna take the two of us off him, off this dude in Monaco, nobody. I love this Mickey Rourke story, just kind of <laughs> out of nowhere. I think this is B-roll stuff that they shot, He's slowly, but they liked the story so much they had to put it in the documentary anyways. Mickey Rourke is slowly turning into like everyone's weird aunt. <laughs> He's dressed like, uh, uh, I don't know, a tough Steven Tyler. That's part of the thing where, man, where we got caught up in the moment and, you know, man, we're lucky that that dude wasn't there because we would both still be sitting in jail over there right now. It's well known that Mickey Rourke is obsessed with boxing. And, like, I get it. He's, he's probably a, a much better boxer than either of us uh, put and together. The movie was The Wrestler, though. It seems like he's really running on the fumes. Like, his tough guy persona is just so surface, it almost seems desperate. And look, Mickey Rourke, if you got a problem with anything I'm saying, because I'm sure you're listening. Step up, Drew will beat your ass out in these streets, okay? <laughs> Just make sure Mike Tyson's not backing you up if, right now. And Mike right? Tyson, if you if you got any problems with anything we say, say it to Drew's face and he'll fuck you up, okay? I'm waiting for you. Shirtless. In the club. I respect you and everything you're about, but Drew, he's not going <laughs> to take your shit. So we cut from Mickey Rourke to Maya Angelou. Peas in a pod. Next day I came out and he, this young man and another black young man his age, we're standing up face to face using the most vile language. And you knew any minute they were going to come to blows. One black man of age went up to these two young men and tried to talk to them. So he got one, I went to the other. And I said, excuse me. He said, I wouldn't give, I said, I understand that. I said, please let me speak. I said, yes, I see that. But when was the last time anyone told you that it's all for you. What the hell? These stories are just so out there. This story. <laughs> the Mickey Rourke story, then Maya Angelou's like, this boy was cursing in ways that I never even imagined. I've heard them, but not, not in such combination. This obviously is taking place on a movie set. Yeah, this was the movie with Jen Jackson. Yeah, yeah, Juice. And no, not No, Juice. no, uh, uh, Poetic Justice. Poetic Justice, yeah. It almost sounds fake, but I'm just going to take my Angela's word for it. But it just seems like if anyone else was telling this story, it'd be like, yeah, that happened. Sure. So Maya Angelou gets in the middle of the fight, goes over to Tupac, tosses an arm around him, and guilt trips him with 300 years of the black experience led you to this. That we've lived 300 years on the edge of a dime so that you could exist. When is the last time? Do you know that we stood on slave ship uh, decks and stood on auction blocks and were hosed down like dogs for you? Damn, Maya Angelou. <laughs> I, well, yeah, she could do that, right? He started to cry. So I put my arm around his waist and walked him down. There was a little, like a ditch. 
and I kept his back to the people because they started coming back. I'm sure they were afraid of random shooting or something. And I just talked to him. And I had no handkerchief or Kleenex, so I just cleaned his face with my hands and talked to him. And then he shuffles off, like, thanks for changing my life for five minutes. And then at the end of the story, Janet Jackson shows up. It's like, when Janet Jackson came running in, she says, Dr. Angelo, Dr. Angelo, I don't believe you just talked to Tupac Shakur. I didn't know Six Pack. I never heard of anybody named Tupac. I did, I mean, that's not my music. It's not my generation. You can kind of see Maya Angelou pulling that. Not yeah. too many people have the sway to pull that, right. but that's yeah. one of them. She can pull it off. Now we get into the context of Mike Tyson. It's pretty much established that this guy was a fucking like monster, knock you out in one round. Maybe you'll make it through five punches with this guy in his in his prime. But on February 11th, 1990, and I remember this very vividly as kids, we talked about this big time. Buster Douglas dethroned the monster and won the heavyweight championship. One of the biggest upsets in sports history, just absolutely shocking. And they they say a couple lines here that I thought were especially good. Some of the better parts of the documentary. When they're talking about these two guys, again, the whole documentary is comparing them both to each other, trying to put them both in the same kind of frame. They say that these guys were so tough that when you're always tough, and that's your whole personality is being tough, you have this armor that you can't take off. And if you can't take the armor off, it eventually becomes a weakness. And that's when they cut to this Buster Douglas fight. And it's very, very, very interesting. The way they talk about Tupac as well, it's a line, it was something like, he got drunk on his own myth-making. Yes. A couple of very good lines in there to kind of drive home this... Instead of just saying, like, oh, these guys never got too far away from the street and they <laughs> they did some reprehensible shit. It's it's kind of hard to imagine. Like, I know the, the hubris of Tupac, it wrecked people's lives. There was an incident where, like, a kid got shot by a stray bullet because of some dumb confrontational shit that his clique was involved in. And I believe he had to pay out, like, a half a million dollars. Both have sexual assault charges on their record. Mike Tyson, more infamously so. We also get in, the Buster Douglas loss also kind of leads into where Mike Tyson was leading up to this night in question. Desiree Washington uh, had accused him of rape. And Tyson was charged and served three years for that shit. And also, his wife... Later, would do interviews saying, like, yeah, this guy was very abusive domestically. and He, he gets out of control, um, throwing, screaming. Does he hit you? He shakes, he pushes, he, um, he swings. He, sometimes I think he's trying to scare me. Uh, there, there's, there's... There are times when, or there were times that it happened when I thought I was, I could handle it, you know. And just recently, I've become afraid. Is it really that hard to imagine some dude whose job is to fuck people up and in turn start taking blows to the head himself? Someone who can beat up most anyone on the planet is rewarded for their physical ferocity. So to get what you want, that's what you use. They go into it a little bit on how different types of along the socio-political climate felt differently about Mike Tyson at this time. Yeah. And it is interesting. And we get back to Maya Angelou, who says she went to visit Mike Tyson in prison. She's just all over the place. So she wanted to go see him. I went, of course. 
I'm somebody's mother, and I have a son, and of course I win. Sonia Steptoe, she's talking about the black community's reaction to this charge, and, and a lot of men stood behind Tyson as a victim of the system, but she said it was a surprising amount of women that stood behind him too. So we get into this weird gray area within um, like how the black community is reacting to this, and it's Mike Tyson is wearing the weight of like histories of undeniable injustice in the minds of a lot of people, but the women who have accused him of domestic assault and rape, they these are also black women with these same history and of marginalization. So it seems like I'm not saying anyone's really making any excuses here. But it seemed like... I'll tell you that someone came up to me and accused me of participating in a black man's lynching uh, because of the things that um, I wrote in Sports Illustrated about that trial, about Desiree Washington, and about Mike Tyson. But there's some patriarchal bullshit going on here as well. But Maya Angelou is kind of blown away when she sees Tyson. First of all, because she expects this monster from his reputation. And he's shorter than she is. And then he, he gets there... He asked for her to come see him in prison to ask about literature. Miss Angelo, how would you explain the uh, uh, Afrocentricity of uh, James Baldwin and uh, Richard Wright, along with the European centricity, a Eurocentricity of um, Tolstoy? And my angel just starts laughing. And that's what I did too, hearing about this. It's just so unexpected. Well, Tyson was doing a lot of reading when he was locked up. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the thing to do when you're locked up. But Tupac also comes to visit Tyson in jail while he's locked up. During times when Tupac also isn't in jail as well. And Tyson is like keeping him calm with all the shit he's dealing with in his life. He's cur- He's dealing with a gun charge around this time. Says he's a little too bout it bout it. And warns him of his associates. His associates, of course, are Suge Knight, Death Row Records folk. Tupac goes on Arsenio. He says, look, if Mike Tyson tells you you gotta calm down, I probably gotta calm down. Probably a tip-off, you're getting a little too crazy. You speak to a Joan Morgan, she's like, uh, she writes about hip-hop, she's a journalist in that field. Joan Morgan is very interesting, because she kind of sends this documentary into like a very nuanced layer that I didn't really expect, in terms of the cultural representation of these folks and how... As a woman who's covered hip-hop for 21 years, I have seen a lot of really despicable behavior on the parts of women. Um, That we're not always... The flip side of of sexism is that it tends to create this um, victim-oppressor model in um, feminism. So the men are the oppressors and the women have no agency. And what I saw as a hip-hop journalist and a feminist hip-hop journalist were women who had a hell of a lot of agency and made conscientious, uh, manipulative um, choices to align themselves with whatever guy or famous guy that they wanted to get with that night. It was kind of hard to say if she was saying that like Tupac's charges may have been made up or just thrust upon him. It seems like the charges were that he was present, not directly taken involved in it. They don't talk about Tupac's charge exactly they just say that he gets hit with sexual assault charges too yeah and do you remember this because i definitely do as a big tupac fan again growing up well yeah recount what's going on they don't they kind of pull they kind of hold back on a lot they acknowledge the existence of these charges but the they don't go into any details on tyson or tupac but tupac's was a little different because he uh 
the charge was Tupac was found some woman, consensual sex, and then he brought in his boys too and was like, hey, if you're with me, you're with them too. Yeah. And she was like, I didn't agree to that. Oh, well, shit. And yeah, that's that's the charge he got hit with, basically. <laughs> was I don't even remember the exact details of the charge, but that was the crime, which seems like a crime. One point, Tupac is shot before he's ever killed. But this is while he's on trial. He is at Quad Recording Studios, and him and his friends get robbed and shot. And if you can see the little comic panel that they're showing at this point, they're showing the comic representation yeah. of him getting shot in the leg. Somebody's saying, "Is Biggie with you?" And this is this is their beef, really. Yeah. This they already have this East Coast West Coast rivalry. It's very heavily suspected that it was that bad boy crew, people associated with them, that yeah. shot Tupac at Quad's recording studios. And they even made the song, Who Shot Ya? Who shot ya? Separate the weak from the ops. Leap hard to creep them Brooklyn streets. It's on, nigga. Fuck all that bickering beef. I can hear sweat trickling down your cheek. Your heartbeat sound like Sasquatch's feet. Thundering, shaking the concrete. Then the shit stopped when I fall the plot. Neighbors call the cops if they heard mad shots. It's actually pretty much an educated guess as to who killed both Biggie and Tupac. Biggie's name is never mentioned in this documentary. Not, yeah, not once. It's not mentioned, but everybody who knows this story from other documentaries like Biggie and Tupac and all this other stuff that was out there and who followed it in person like we were there for this for when this all happened in 1996. But yeah, you know who shot you. It's a, it's a famous song by Biggie at Tupac. And then we all know Tupac's response, which was hit him up. Yeah. And again, this is where I draw that line, man. Hit him up is so much better than who shot you. And hit him up is just straight fucking vitriol. Fuck you and your motherfucking mama. We gonna kill all you motherfuckers. When he goes at the end of that song and he's just naming names. Now when I came out, I told you it was just about Biggie. Did anybody had to open their mouth with a motherfucker opinion? Well, this is how we gonna do this. Fuck Mob Deep. As a motherfucking crew And if you want to be down with bad boy Then fuck you too Chino XL Fuck you too All you motherfuckers Fuck you too All these years later We're still forced to pick one over the other Yeah you can like both I don't say I dislike Biggie His songs I, are great too I think any reasonable hip hop fan Automatically <laughs> likes both But if you compare those two songs Which are direct responses to each other Fucking hit them up man <laughs> You can't hear that without almost being afraid yourself you're like oh shit i wouldn't want to be the people he's yelling at it's just rage on a microphone and it's so impressive so tupac gets locked up they talk about how this incarceration kind of stripped him a little bare to the point where he was acknowledging aspects of his hubris and that seems like tupac one point he's doing something incredibly stupid and the next point he's like man that was really stupid but it seems like it takes like some wise woman in his life to like bring that out of him to say what that his problems was he didn't walk away he got himself into these situations and stayed there yeah and that's when we see suge knight breaking down suge now now mr knight if you're listening huge fan if there's anything that doesn't sound right to you in our discussion here I just want you to know that Drew's not going to take your shit and he'll drag you out into these streets and he'll beat your fucking ass. I'm going to ask him not to do it. I'm on your side. But Drew, just don't run your fucking mouth in front of him because he will go off. All right, I'm going to get one of those uh, bulletproof vests with the death row logo. <laughs> so that's how we go. We go hard. And Suge, 
Suge posts bail for Pac, gets him out of prison. 1.4 million. He's released on October 10th, 1995. Oh, Mike Tyson released from prison that same year. Mike's first bout back against Peter McNeely. I remember that. One round. One round. Weren't people uh, accusing McNeely of throwing it? (laughs) I think that was a big thing then. Anyway, Buster Mathis down in three. A dude named Bruno. The one we saw in the very beginning of the documentary in the six months before scene. Right. Where Tupac's hugging Mike Tyson after he knocks out Bruno. No ambitions as a rider this time, though. Bruce Selden becomes the heavyweight champ of the world. Puts him on a collision course. Did you catch what he said at the press conference? First of all, I'd like to thank my Lord and Jesus, Savior Christ, for giving me the opportunity to be here. His Lord and Jesus, Savior Christ. (laughs) All right, good for him. Well, he gets Tyson, and even as the heavyweight champ, this is the biggest matchup. Mike Tyson's the name. Mike Tyson's the monster. But this is a cool part, because I didn't know this. They go into the track record studio, which makes a beat, and says Tupac's going to come in there and record a rap as... Mike Tyson's entrance song for this fight against Bruce Selden. And they say, Lee, you make it. You have the time. He's going to come in there. And they're interviewing the guy at Track Record Studios who said they have this beat ready. Tupac shows up, listens to the beat two or three times with a pad and paper, with a blunt and Hennessy. And then he goes in there, knocks out the lyrics, and is out the door 20 minutes after he got there. He's, they said he kind of went through the whole song three times total. And then that was it. Got his blunt, got his head as, <laughs> and knocks it out in 20 minutes and leaves. And Tupac was Dude's like... Dude's a fucking genius. I'll see you Sunday. Of course, that Sunday would not come, but... We got to hear this song as Mike Tyson was entering the stage. I, I don't think I've heard this one I've before. Never heard it. No, I don't know what this new. is. I'd love to know the actual name of this track or if it was it. Because it does name drop both Tyson and Selden. It was obviously made for this fight. All they see is black venoms in my silhouette. Just watch the fear reappear in their eyes when I hit the set. Oh no, Tupac with Team Tyson. Seldom was seldom seen. I am Mike, cut his hair like a guillotine. Walks into Tyson's locker room, and Tyson is just like beating his hands against each other, getting himself fully into the mode to destroy somebody. He's like, he's a monster right here. And he walks into Seldon's locker room, and he's like, this guy looks nervous. <laughs> I think you know how the fight's gonna go at this point. So in one round, we get, um, there, there's, you can pretty much recap this so quickly. Um, Tyson lands a right. It's not like a dead on, but he kind of stumbles. Uh, Selden kind of stumbles. And they talk about how this move, it wasn't a, a, a full-on blow, but it was almost like a psychological blow because Selden was so kind of maybe a little nervous here. Mike was going to make him feel my power. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but Tyson gets him with a left hook that rattles him. For real. And Tyson regained the uh, WBC Heavyweight Championship. Over in one round. Tupac was sitting there at this fight. He's hyped. Everybody's hyped. They're fired up. They're ready to fight. Because you just got to see this knockout in one round. And then (laughs) minutes later, there's video of him and Sug Knight kicking the crap out of somebody in the lobby of the MGM Grand where this happened. Orlando Anderson, to be specific, which is the guy that is essentially the the Los Angeles Police Department considers it all an open investigation still. But it is by a lot of researchers comes to the conclusion that Orlando Anderson, Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, who was a crip uh, who got in a confrontation with Tupac and Suge in Vegas, would later come back and be the man who shot that gun. Now, this is interesting, too, because they say that his goal was to snatch a death row chain off of one of these guys and then send it to Puff and Biggie, bad boy. 
I think it's questionable. It's kind of proof. The actions of Orlando Anderson. It's that sounds not, like some GTA shit right it, there. It's not really suspected that Puffy and Biggie were like so like in the know of this Crips network on in Las Vegas or Los Angeles. It wasn't that they were like, pick up the phone, like, get it done. It did not go down that way. It was just that the, the, the feud hype was so big that people kind of injected themselves. I know... Well, it seemed like this guy was trying to impress them. Yes. By snatching a chain from death row. Yeah. And even though they never probably asked for that shit. But the person who is uh, strongly suspected to have killed Biggie is this guy named Wardell Pucci Faust. Which is not mentioned at all in this documentary. Who is, who is a lot, actually a lot more directly connected to uh, the Bloods and specifically Suge Knight. And Pucci was more of a straight up, I'm the guy that gets jobs done. Where Orlando was kind of maybe more of a, probably more of a, of a random style dude who's just kind of doing, doing shit because he just thinks he's hard. And, and he was, I mean, he was a fucking crip, but maybe not like, maybe not as stone cold and organized as maybe Pucci Faust was. So it seems like there, there's a big possibility that Suge may be a lot more directly connected to Biggie's death. But Tupac's death was just, like, wrapped up in the fury of a Tupac tornado. Well, Suge is in this fight, in this confrontation, in the lobby, and he's driving the car that Tupac's sitting in the passenger seat of when he gets shot. He's directly involved in this. Yes. And he's interviewed in this documentary. Suge and Tupac are getting changed. They're ready to roll over to Club 662, where Mike Tyson's going to meet them later in the night. Right. After this fight. And uh, Tupac at the time is dating... Quincy Jones' daughter. He looked out for my baby girl. I'm so thankful, Tupac, that you thought to put my baby girl in another vehicle. He says, don't come out at all. You're not coming out to this club tonight because I don't want you hanging out with the people I'm hanging out with tonight. Stops at a light in the corner of Coval Street. Gunshots. The car turns off onto a curve, hits a flat. That's Suge driving again, trying to get out of this. Yeah. And it's, the car stops on Koval. Soon, uh, cops are surrounding, and Suge is yelling out that an ambulance is needed. Suge got grazed in the back of the head by a bullet. Tupac got hit four times. And they have a, a guy in this documentary who was a fight fan who just came out of that fight, happened to see them next to him in the car, and took a picture. That famous picture we see now of yeah. Suge and Tupac in the car just a minute before this happened, and saw it all, which is, again, just... Just super interesting. The way they find these people for these 30 for 30s is very impressive. Someone who was actually there, who saw it happen, who was uninvolved. Well, the family comes to the hospital and they see that he is just not in a good place. But Tupac's mom is out comforting fans who have come to the hospital to see what's going on. They think that he might make it because his brother's there and saying he still looks strong. He's fighting against all this stuff, all these tubes they got him hooked up to. But he's in critical condition, and yeah, they removed a lung. Six days after the night in question, he hung, he hung on for as long as he could, but Tupac died at the age of 25. And every talking head interviewed in this documentary gets a flashback to remembering where they were when they heard the news. Even Mickey Rourke. I was in Brazil. Two months after the death of Tupac, Tyson lost... His championship to Evander Holyfield, who hang who hung on to it for a while. And they do talk to Tyson in this about him feeling guilt because Tupac was there to support him that night, was there at his fight that was over in one round, 
and led to, directly to this confrontation, to this party at the club that they were both supposed to attend afterwards, that he got shot on the way to. And it implies that that had something to do with you know, his lack of success in the ring afterwards. Mm-hmm. That something was taken away from Mike Tyson that day, too. But I really got the feel that they were stretching this analogy yeah. of tying the two of them together by yeah. this point. But I do like them talking to... <laughs> having interviews with the cop there and then being like, um, we had professional bodyguards there and uh, no one will even tell us what color the car was. It's like, no one's telling the cops shit. No. Which... Shug's going to take care of it later. Yeah, but did Shug, did he have Orlando killed at a later time? I mean, Orlando would die. I forget... What do you, I think, uh, no, Pucci was killed on his motorcycle, was shot in his back. Uh, Orlando did die, I can't remember how he died. A lot of bloodshed, more outside the ring than in. And a lot of it just seems fucking unnecessary as shit. And we get our spoken word slam poets back in here again. With the battlefield for a brain, a bullet wound crying helplessly to the mumble of his heartbeat, unleashing that howling typhoon that spins gracefully in the prison of his chest in order to release him from the corners that all black men are slave to. You know what? At this point, all they did was remind me that no one was as good as Tupac at this shit. <laughs> Especially not these guys. Sorry, I thought Joshua there's... Brendan Bennett and Raleek B. Young Johnson. They, they added a little bit of energy to this documentary, but... I thought it was pretty good wasn't huh. not he just he was just next level is he supposed to be tupac no they're not no. supposed to be they're tupac. in this documentary doing oh, no. his shtick almost well he wore the bandana the way like, he wore it he did wear the tupac style bandana with the tie in the front <laughs> i don't know if the two of them were supposed to represent different things the one had a pretty bad lisp too yeah i don't know i don't know, I don't know. but yeah slam poets and we do get a, maybe an answer to our question there was an illustrator credited for all this comic book art that we saw in there. A Steve Beaumont, a.k.a. Flame Boy. Flame Boy Beaumont. Do you know Flame Boy from your comic book history? No, Is he I, a big I, deal? I don't. Didn't recognize the art style? No, I didn't. That made me think that a lot of it was made, as you said, for this documentary specifically. Which is pretty impressive. Yeah. I was wondering that through most of the movie. Until one of the very last scenes, they had Mike Tyson looking out the window... At the MGM Grand, where this all started, in a purple shirt, and then it switches to an illustration of him looking out the window in the purple shirt. Mm. Like, oh shit, this was done for this documentary specifically. I don't know, that's pretty impressive. I still don't understand why they needed it, but... Yeah, there were. Th- it seemed like they executed things fine, but you still had to question if it needed to be there. Still pretty sick that they got all that done for this documentary. That's yeah. a lot of work to it, give it a little extra style for and a sure. framing device. And that's that film, One Night in Vegas by Reggie Rock by the Wood, the 30 for 30. Drew. And it goes out, not on a Tupac song, but on a song called Victory by Jamal Joseph. Which again made me think, fucking play more Tupac. Hey, let me say something, let me say something. Drew, this is me, it's Mike Tyson. Um, you did a great job. I thought I was going to have to whip your pussy ass upside down in this house. And throw a dog on your nuts and... Break into your home and eat one of your cats and wear your clothes and smell your laundry. A little bit of intimidated right now. But you did a really good job tonight. I think you, you did good. I'm going to go eat a quinoa salad. And, um, yeah, don't fuck with me. And he's gone. Man, it's good to see you, Mike. I appreciate the love. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And the being a, you know, loyal documenteers listener. I mean, we think you're a rapist, so, like, the the... Personal respect is just because we're afraid of you. 
They really decided to skirt over the point. They mentioned them both in prison. They didn't really mention that, yeah, these are both individuals with sexual assault bookings. I wonder if Harvey Weinstein's like, well, no one cared that he raped someone. Uh, this will blow over. They did spend three years in prison. But yeah, then he got a cartoon with his pigeons, so it's all good, right? He did serve time. That's that's. Uh, whereas Harvey will probably just be under house arrest in some condo. Anyway, Drew, we don't rate 30 for 30 documentaries that we do in a star rating scale. Some big stars in this film. But we're going to think of them more like Herzog's. So you're going to give this... One through five Herzogs. I'm going to give one through five Herzogs. We're going to combine them for best out of ten Werner Herzogs. I'll go first. I thought it was pretty good. Talking about that comic book styling, I think it helped that it kind of surprised me in this one. Because like we said, when you're touching base on geeky subjects in the past, you can pretty much go ahead and pre-roll your eyes because they're going to do like a lame comic storytelling. And most of the time it doesn't work. I still question the necessity I would say that he ex Reggie Rock by the way actually executed it better than any other version of it that I've seen so far. A lot of things are put together as a really good job. I think constantly trying to link them together as one got a little heavy handed. I think it's enough that they were friends from tumultuous past. They didn't have to be like, I don't know, spiritually tethered in every aspect of life. I mean, sure, I'm sure they definitely had a lot in common, but but there was aspects of it, specifically a lot of what a lot of the journalists weighed in. It's put some context into like the cultural perspectives of this and the cultures within, especially the hip hop genre and how people act and how people behave and how people are perceived within the black community as well as outside of it. And they kind of provided a voice that through the, gen the, the most generic of talking heads format, they were able to provide uh, some really distinct layers to this that I was not expecting. I kind of wish they expounded more upon that kind of thing because I think explaining the cultural significance of the time in black culture with these artists and superior sportsmen, that can be like something that can be analyzed in a whole separate kind of thing and I and I found myself kind of wishing it had a little more of that than certain other tricks that it had but I think overall it's a pretty good 30 for 30 better than I thought it was going to be when it started when it started I was like oh here we go is this going to be a little tropey is this going to be a little hacky in some ways it was but it's not the most egregious that I've ever seen so I'm gonna go slightly over the Herzog average with a 3.25 you make one good point that I thought was like I totally agree with you there was that it, they did not need to continually tether them together to make this story of Mike as Tupac and Tupac as Mike. That was really tenuous from the beginning and it just got stretched thinner and thinner throughout the entire documentary. This could have been a perfectly fine documentary about One Night in Vegas, about these events both happening at the same time connected to each other through you know Tupac Shakur attending Mike Tyson's fight and getting in that fight in the lobby of it and then getting shot later in that day. I thought they did a great job with the talking heads in this. Even the kind of random stories like Mickey Rourke and Maya Angelou really yeah. added something to it. Weird, but entertaining. Yeah, they added some fun to it. And there were stories about these central protagonists that we've never heard before, or at least I certainly haven't. I doubt anybody's really heard those outside of these documentaries. It's very, very, a lot of interesting stuff in there. The central conceit... It lost me. 
them tying the two of them together like that. And the musical choices. Yeah. It started so strong with that the images of Mike Tyson knocking the shit out of Bruno set to ambitions as a rider was incredible. It was so good. And they never did it again through the rest of the movie. They had the one rap of Tupac that they showed the process of making it that was used for the fight against Selden, which was super cool, and I want to know more about that song. Yeah. But other than that, his songs weren't in this at all. Uh, Brenda's Got a Baby showed up. There's no more than three Tupac songs in here. That cheesy victory song with the One Night in Vegas lyrics oh, playing yeah, yeah. through the end credits. <laughs> and for them to, to not mention Bad Boy and Biggie outside of a blurb in the comic book background that easily could have been missed. I think I missed everything else in those comic panels. I just happened to see that one, which yeah. made me wonder what other context did I miss by not pausing it constantly to read what was going on in those comic book panels. Just not the way I like to watch a movie. And not playing who shot you and hit him up. Come on. <laughs> we'll fix that for you. Yeah. We'll I'm, fix that for you. Rock by the bay or rock by the tree. Reggie rock by the wood. <laughs> Whatever your name is. I'm going to give it a 2.75. Okay. I think they did a lot of things in this documentary between the slam poetry and the comic books and the interviews. And only some of it worked. Yeah. They really tried to make it different, which I do respect. But a lot of this didn't really work. They could have just framed it as the story and fleshed that out a lot better. Also, they seemed really to gloss over and apologize for <laughs> the you know, yeah. <laughs> the sexual assault You're charges right, yeah. that landed both men in prison. Yeah. That's interesting. I maybe kind of got a lot more out of a little bit of the nuance, but we both kind of agree that, you know, there was just some things that were a little uh, over heavy handed. And I think that's fair. So you take your 2.7. Wait, what would you give it a 2.75? Yep. With my 3.25, that is 6 out of 10 Herzogs, which that seems right to me. The one that in Vegas by Reggie Rock. By the wood. Reggie Rock. And by the wood. Now, Drew, we don't know what it's going to be yet, but next month is a listener request month. And oh, shit. I'm so nervous. So I'm, I'm hoping someone drops me a 30 for 30. Uh, we're Of course, we're, we're recording this in January. Yeah, we'll get some. But we'll get some. But yeah, we need a 30 for 30 request out there. And I assume by now we have it. So by the time <laughs> people will hear this. So why am I even talking about all this? <laughs> we'll just edit that out in post. Next month, listener request month. And it's going to be a good hooting knee slapping time. Don't fight me, Mike Tyson. He's gone. He's eating the quinoa salad. Okay. Uh, don't fight me, Suge Knight. He's really gentle with my cats. He seems to really like them. I think Shug Knight's in prison. Pretty sure he caught a murder charge. Don't fight me, Quincy Jones. I'll fuck you up, motherfucker. <laughs> I'll, me and Rashida will kick your ass. Because I'm the dude. I'm here. Come at me. You guys know how to find us. Uh, I'm going to get Tyson up in this shit, motherfucker. One more thing. Keep on docking. I'm going to snatch that documenteer's chain right off you. Yeah, I'll snatch your ass chain, <laughs> bitch. That's <laughs> chain. How would you explain Afrocentricity of James Baldwin as opposed to... The Eurocentricity of a Dostoevsky. Pick up the hammer! Come on, Shorty, get out. Get out.
I was in Brazil. Me and I, myself and you, the Rasta Mini Shay and the rest of my crew. Reggae music's been around for a while. Vanilla Ice is doing it to hip hop style because this is the one that we call the Raw Roo. Everybody out there, you know just what to do. Just clap your hands and stomp your feet and move around to the sound of the reggae beat. I'm Alexander, he's no Alexander. I'm the best ever. There's never been anybody as ruthless. I'm Sonny Liston, I'm Jack Dempsey, there's no one like me. I'm from their claw. There's no one that can match me. My style is impetuous, my defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious. I want your heart, I want to eat his children. Praise be to Allah. It's not my music, it's not my generation.